We're continuing on in our series through the book of Nehemiah, a series that we've entitled A Faith That Moves You Forward. A Faith That Moves You Forward. And this morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3. And I'm going to invite you to stand as we read Nehemiah chapter 3. I haven't decided how much of it we're going to read. So we'll read until I feel good about it. Amen? Nehemiah chapter 3. And I want you to remember, this is the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After the building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanal, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib and next to Zakur, son of Imri, built. Sons of Hosina built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors and bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zaduk, son of Banah, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Joeda, son of Peshaiah, Meshulam, Son of Besadiah repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed the doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatia, Gibeonite, Jadon, and Maranothite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Haraiah, the goldsmith, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, Son of the perfume, uh, perfumer made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And I'll stop right there. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of faith for a purpose. Faith for a purpose. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we dive into your word, God, that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds to hear from you. Pray that you give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I know that that reading probably spurred you on more than any other reading we've ever done. Y'all see how I killed those names? I worked so hard on them, and I still got some of them wrong. A faith for a purpose. In 2002, Rick Warren published his now worldwide famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. Just to give you an idea of how famous this book is, The Purpose Driven Life is one of the most best-selling nonfiction books in publishing history. It's been translated into 137 languages and it's sold more than 50 million copies. Just to put that in perspective, more than 50 million copies. That means that potentially one out of every 160 people in the world have read that book. It's been hailed by people from all walks of life as a game changer for their life. I'll give you an example. The greatest Olympian of all time, Michael Phelps, period. Period. He credits the purpose-driven life with saving his life. Back in 2014, he was in the midst of despair and depression, and he admitted that he was considering ending his life, and he said because he believed the world would be better without him. And someone gave him the purpose-driven life, and he read it, and he credits it with saving his life and cultivating his faith in God. 
Kim Kardashian once listed it as one of her favorite books of all time after receiving a copy of it from her friend Kathy Lee Gifford. Even the infamous drug lord El Chapo in 2016 was given a copy of The Purpose Driven Life and he read it. He speaks of how it has changed him. So the question is, what is it about wanting a life driven by purpose that draws people from all over the world in every walk of life, from Olympians to drug lords to whatever it is that Kim Kardashian does? No shade, maybe a little. What is it about purpose? Well, the answer to that question is rightly explained by Warren at the very beginning of the book is that you and I were created for a purpose. And the reason that we can struggle in life, the reason we can sometimes feel like we're just floating along is because we can lose sight of the fact that we were created for a purpose. Our purpose in an activity or in a moment or our purpose for a day or for a season, when we lose sight of that purpose, some of you know it very well, you can feel like you're just floundering. But this is true of our faith as well. Our faith is a purposeful faith. We've got to remember, it's not that the Spirit developed faith in us so that we could then go about our day, continue our lives, doing whatever we wanted to do. There was a purpose to our faith. And what I want you to understand this morning, what I hope to show you is that a faith that moves you forward, forward in life, forward into the next season, forward into the next challenge, forward into whatever it is that God has for you, a faith that moves you forward is a faith that has a purpose. Now here it is. I'm going to give it away at the very beginning. I'm going to tell you what the purpose of your faith is. Doesn't mean you get to check out. You're just getting the advanced copy. Our faith, the faith that has a purpose, the purpose of our faith is to make the glory of God known. It's a faith that seeks to represent the kingdom on earth. It is a faith that is fixed on and moving towards the promise of God. Plain and simple, the aim of our faith is to glorify God in all things. Part of the reason, if not the main reason, that Jesus came was to restore our ability to glorify God by being reconciled to him through faith. I'm reminded of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festival oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And here it is. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Westminster Catechism tries to pick this idea up in the very first question that it poses, what is the chief end of man? And the answer given is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. The purpose of our faith, though it looks different, it takes on different avenues, it it plays out in different seasons, at the core of our faith, the purpose of it is to glorify God. But this will require a faith that is focused on that purpose. So the question becomes then, how do we cultivate that type of faith? What are some things that we need to know about about that purpose if we're going to be faithful to our purpose? And this morning, I believe believe Nehemiah 3 gives us some helpful insights to consider toward answering that question, things that we need to know if we're going to have faith for a purpose. Now, let me say this before I dive in. I love passages like this. 
for many of us. I encourage y'all at the beginning of it. I'm assuming because y'all are such great Christians that every one of you has done it. I said you should probably read through Nehemiah beginning to end. So I know that y'all have read through Nehemiah beginning to end. Amen. I'd be willing to bet that for some of you when you got to Nehemiah 3, you probably read about as far as I read and said, I got it. Nehemiah 4. They built this gate. They built this gate. They built this gate. We got it. I'll be honest with you, I was tempted to try to figure out how I can include Nehemiah 3 into Nehemiah 2 or Nehemiah 4 so I didn't have to just preach this chapter. But I'm thankful that I didn't. I'm thankful that I pressed in because it's a reminder to us that there is not a word of Scripture that is meaningless or pointless. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And that means Nehemiah chapter 3 and the list of the people who built what is profitable. Somehow, in some way, God wanted this in the Bible. And it's valuable. And as I dove in, there were some beautiful lessons that I learned. We may have to dig deep for them, but they're there. And so even as I was tempted to gloss over this chapter, there are profound insights to understanding purpose and how we glorify God in this world. So there are four things I want you to see and four things I want you to know. And, and, and just know that there are more insights than just these four, but things that will help us as we consider this idea that our faith has to be fixed on a specific purpose. Here's the first thing that I want to show you this morning. Our purpose is spiritual. Look again at verses 1 and 2, and then I want you to look at the last verse of the chapter. So Nehemiah 3, verses 1 and 2, says, The high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall of the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them, Zakur, son of Imri, built now look at verse 32 down at the bottom there. It said the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner of the sheep gate. So I wasn't expecting ice to be in that cup, so I got to chew it real quick. Here's what chapter 3 is. Chapter 3 is Nehemiah recounting who's been working on what sections of the wall. So just a reminder, some of you might have jumped in. We're three chapters in. So at the beginning of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah learns as he's in Susa, a cupbearer for the king of Persia. The people of God are in exile under Persian rule. He learns that Jerusalem is still in shambles. That Ezra has led people back. Zerubbabel led people back. Ezra to follow. They rebuilt the temple, but the walls of the city are destroyed, and the, and the city of Jerusalem still hasn't been rebuilt. And so Nehemiah is broken over this. He goes to the king, and he asks the king to let him go and help rebuild the walls. And the king allows him. King Artaxerxes says, you can go. He gives him timber. He gives him security. He gives him letters of safe passage. And so Nehemiah is in Jerusalem. He's, he's explored Jerusalem. He knows what needs to be rebuilt. And here in chapter 3, we watch as the rebuilding takes place. But what Nehemiah does as he is recounting what was rebuilt, he begins with the sheep gate and he works in a counterclockwise manner to highlight all the spots along the wall that have been rebuilt. And he begins with the sheep gate and he ends with the sheep gate. It's kind of small to see, but if you look there in the top, the top uh, right corner, that's the sheep gate. And so what he's going to do is, is the progression of this text is he is going to work around like this of all the places that were rebuilt until he gets back to the sheep gate. 
But the sheep gate is significant. There's a reason that Nehemiah starts with the sheep gate. Because he could have picked any one of these spots. We have to understand it wasn't that the sheep gate was built, then they moved to the next one, then they moved to the next one. All of these are going on at the same time. And the amount of time that it took them to rebuild these walls, they all had to be working at the same time. But Nehemiah intentionally begins by recounting that the sheep gate was the first thing. Here's why the sheep gate is so significant. The sheep gate is the gate where the animals who were going to be sacrificed in the temple were brought into the city. This is where the sacrifice came through. And notice who's highlighted doing the work there in verse 1. The high priest, Eliashib, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and they installed its doors. Now, Eliashib is the grandson of Joshua. You remember Joshua led them into the promise? It's his grandson. And he, along with the other priests, is said to be working on the sheep gate. But it's interesting because the priests weren't the only ones working on the sheep gate. We learn that in the very last verse in verse 32. There were goldsmiths, there were merchants, there were other people making the repairs. But when Nehemiah starts with the sheep gate, he only mentions the high priest and the priests. So the question becomes, why did Nehemiah start and end here? And why is it initially just the priests who are mentioned doing the work of rebuilding the sheep gate? Well, Nehemiah is trying to communicate something. He's trying to communicate that though the work was physical in nature, it was spiritually significant. One commentator notes this. He says, as they are spiritual leaders of the community, it is essential that the priests take the lead in the project for it is more than just a reconstruction project. It is a God-ordained work turning the reproach of Jerusalem into the glory of God. One could think of it as sort of a first fruits offering with the understanding that all the work moving forward will be done unto the Lord. So track with me. What Nehemiah is communicating is that the work was a physical project. It was. It required lifting and carving rock. It required masonry, tools, and architectural plans. It required physical labor. But ultimately, it was a spiritual work. It was not primarily about building walls. It's not primarily about their protection. It's not primarily about the city or them. It was first and foremost a spiritual act of worship done to the glory of God. They understood that what they were building wasn't primarily about them. It was about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It was about the promise of God. It was about making much of his great name among the nations. It was a spiritual work. So let me pause here and try to bring this to bear on us. What this text is positioned to teach us is that our purpose is primarily spiritual in nature. And so it doesn't matter what physical situation you find yourself in, there is a spiritual opportunity to glorify God. Genuine faith, a faith that moves you forward, is a faith that is fixed on promoting the glory of God with whatever you do and, with where, and wherever you are. Paul says it like this. So many of you know it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, what? Do everything for the glory of God. Two things I want you to get from this. What that means first is that there is no meaningless work. There is no meaningless work. Building a wall can be done for the glory of God. Changing a diaper can be done for the glory of God. Filing your taxes can be done for the glory of God. Going to school can be done. Filing your taxes should be done for the glory of God. I'm playing too much. Going to school can be done for the glory of God. Scrubbing a floor can be done for the glory of God. And we can't miss this because we have a tendency, even though we wouldn't say it, even though theologically we know it, we have a tendency to idolize those positions that are spiritual in nature. Well, if I was a pastor, 
If I was a deacon, if I was a worship leader, if I was the one up here singing, and we tend to elevate those as if those are the only works that are spiritually significant. But this room is filled with people that God has you exactly where he wants you because he wants you to make much of his glory where you are. We have teachers. We have doctors. We have realtors. We have stay-at-home moms. We have insurance people. We have a whole host of people, people that work in restaurants. And you are not where you are by accident. Your work is not meaningless. It is meant to be done for the glory of God. The question is, are you doing it for the glory of God? Paul says, whatever you do can and should be done for the glory of God. But there's a flip side to that. Because if everything should be done for the glory of God, it means that everything can be done for the glory of something else. Let me just make this clear for us. The purpose of your faith is not to build your kingdom. The purpose is to make the kingdom of God known. And this is something we have to be crystal clear on. You cannot build your kingdom and the kingdom of God at the same time. They are two competing kingdoms. One will always win out in your life. And the reason is, the reason is that building your kingdom is not the same as building God's kingdom. And we have to be careful. Track with me. The same things that can be done for the glory of God can be done in an attempt to bring glory to yourself as well. And sometimes no one will know why you're doing it except for you. So often it's not the work that we need to examine. It's the motivation behind the work. I'll just tell you, this is, you know, honestly, I feel this as a pastor. I do. It is a battle. I, I would be willing to bet that all four of your pastors feel this. And if not, it's because they're more sanctified than I am. But I can come up here and preach a sermon that I say is for the glory of God, but if I'm not careful, want you to tell me how great I am at preaching sermons. I can lead in such a way where my primary motivation isn't about the glory of God, but it's about making myself look good so that you'll think I'm a good pastor. I fight that daily. I'm just being honest with you. Don't judge me. Pray for me. Pray for your pastors because we are just as tempted as you are to use the things that God has given us for his glory to try to make much of ourselves. And I'd be willing to bet that if you're honest, you can, you, you can say that same thing. That there are some gifts that God has given you. There's some places that he has placed you that can be used for his glory. But no one will know if it's for his glory other than you. Once again, our purpose is spiritual. Yes, it utilizes physical situations and things. But ultimately, bringing glory to God is a posture of the soul. Let me throw this in. This wasn't in my notes, but... I did that faster than I thought, so I got a little time, so I'm going to go here. I want you to notice how spiritual work required spiritual leaders. It's not just that the priests did it because they were priests. Nehemiah highlights the priests because they are the spiritual authorities over Israel. And what we have to understand is that any spiritual work needs spiritual authority. And I know this is not popular in America. I know it's not. I know there are churches today, not this church, y'all too holy, okay? So I'm going to talk about other churches right now. There are churches right now that if pastors actually exercise the spiritual authority they had in your life, that there are some people that will walk out of the door. Because there is a, there is a reality in scriptures that pastors ought to make demands of you spiritually for the good of your soul. That we should be able to tell you things that are not options for you because you have placed yourself under spiritual authority. But here's the reality. In most American churches, what they want in a pastor is a therapist on call 24-7. 
they don't want someone to speak hard truths of spiritual realities. Doesn't mean you have to take everything we say. We can get stuff wrong. You take everything to scripture, but there's the reality that spiritual authorities are meant to be just that, spiritual authorities. And so if we're going to be doing spiritual work, we need to allow spiritual authorities to be spiritual authorities. And I get it. Part of the reason this is not popular in the United States is because there are some spiritual authorities that have abused that authority in terrible ways. But what that doesn't mean is we get to throw out the idea of authority because it's instituted by God. We just need better authorities. And I just want to be clear. A pastor is not abusing their authority because they told you something spiritually accurate that you didn't like. I'm not saying that pastors can't abuse their authority. We, we guard one another as pastors here and that all the time. But what I am saying is the idea of spiritual authority is a real thing. And if we're going to do a spiritual work for the glory of God, we have to recognize the spiritual authorities that God has placed over our lives. That's it. I'm moving on. I'm off my soapbox. I feel better. Here's the second thing that I want you to see about our purpose. Not only is our purpose spiritual, but our purpose is countercultural. After the sheep gate, we read about the fish gate in verses 3 through 5. The names are super original. <laughs> I want you to pay close attention, though, when we get to verse 5. It says, The sons of Hasenah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Akaz, made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs next to them. Zaduk, son of Baana, made repairs. Here it is. Beside them, Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. So you caught that, right? The, the, the Tekoites, the people from Tekoa, they were there making repairs, even though their nobles didn't, didn't show up. Now, the text doesn't really say why the nobles refused to participate, but there is some speculation, and there are some hints even in the text. So some argue that it could have been just pure rebellion against God, that they just didn't want to be a part of what God was doing. I think that's definitely part of it. But others have suggested that perhaps the nobles didn't want to participate because of what they thought others would think of them. You see, Tekoa was located near the region of Jeshim the Arab. You remember him? Jeshim the Arab from, last, from chapter 2, verse 19. So after Nehemiah declares that they're going to start building, we read in Nehemiah 2, 19, that when Sambalot, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Jeshim the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So some have argued that because Tekoa was, was under in the region where Jeshem governed that there's a real chance that they feared reprisal from Jeshem more than they feared the Lord. But there's something interesting in the text that also gives us some clues. I'm reading from the CSB, and in the CSB it translated, translates it that they did not lift a finger to help. But if you go back to the original Hebrews, it actually says they stiffed their neck, or they were a stiff-necked people. Now, that's an interesting designation for people who refuse to follow the Lord. Because often throughout the Old Testament, that's a designation that is directed at the people of God when they've turned from God to pursue worldly things. We see it in Exodus chapter 32. Remember that whole golden calf incident? God refers to Israel as a stiff-necked people because they were worshiping this idol. Or you can go to the New Testament and take Stephen in Acts 7.51 as he is speaking to the high priest and other Jews. And he says in Acts 7.51, you are stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, you do also. So the term is typically designated to those who have supposedly, watch this, encountered God and yet refused to do according to his will. 
So this is where the nobles of Tekoa are. They've encountered God, but they are stiff-necked people, and they refuse to be involved in rebuilding the wall. But for whatever reason, the Tekoites, the people under those nobles, refuse to follow their nobles, and they participate in the rebuilding of the wall anyway. In essence, they are standing in opposition to their very nobles. Here's what I want you to see. The Tekoites are modeling a truth that we have to come to grasp that faithfully living for the glory of God will inevitably place you in opposition to the culture around you. I'm going to say it again. That faithfully living for the glory of God will inevitably place you in opposition to the culture around you. Our role as kingdom representatives here on earth who promote a better kingdom is to refuse to bow to the cultural pressure of our day. And I'm telling you, church, there is pressure. And if you're not feeling that pressure... The problem might be you're not feeling the pressure because you've already given in to it. But again, church, I'm telling you, there is pressure about how we as the church should understand sexuality in our day and age from the culture. There is a pressure from the culture about how we should think about race and ethnicity. There is a pressure about how we raise our children and what we should and should not do. There is pressure when it comes to politics and the church. And all I'm saying is that the church ought to be so countercultural that not only are we feeling the pressure, but we're putting a little bit of pressure back on the culture. Not out of spite, not out of anger, not out of hatred, but because we genuinely believe we represent a better kingdom. We believe that human flourishing and goodness in this world is not found by trying to define your own identity, but by finding your identity in the God who made you in his image. We believe that human flourishing and goodness in sexuality is expressed in the confines of marriage the way that God intended for it to be. We believe there is human flourishing and goodness when children aren't used as political pawns, but are trained in the way of righteousness so that they will not depart from it. Not only do these things lead to human flourishing and goodness, but that flourishing and goodness grounded in the kingdom of God actually promotes his glory. How amazing is it that what God, what gives God glory simultaneously leads to our flourishing and goodness. It's almost as if we really do have a good God. But we have to understand that as we submit to this good God and live for his glory, it will not always lead to cultural comfort, but it will always promote a better kingdom. And so the question we have to ask is, do we actually believe his kingdom is better? Do we actually believe that flourishing is found in obedience to God, or is it found in the ways of this world? But a faith that is going to make much of the glory of God is a faith that will inevitably be countercultural, not in everything, but in a lot of things. So a faith that is focused, faith for a purpose, a purpose is spiritual, we have to understand that purpose is countercultural. Again, the purpose of glorifying God. But here's the third thing. Our purpose is messy. It's messy. This is my favorite point, by the way. Look with me again at verses 13 and 14. It says, Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars and repaired 500 yards of the wall of the dung gate. Akija, son of Rechab, ruler of the district, Bethacherim repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and, and, and bars. So the dung gate is probably not the best place to hang out. It was the gate that was the furthest from the temple. And it was, as its name says, the place where the waste from the city came out. 
But it wasn't just human waste. This is a place where the priest would actually burn the bodies of the animals whose blood had been shed for sacrifices in the temple. Because they didn't burn animals in the temple. They would shed their blood, but then they would bring the animals outside, the furthest place from the temple, outside the dung gate, and they would burn the animals there, the waste of the animals. Now listen, I don't know about you, but if I got to pick where I would work on this wall, I wouldn't have picked the dung gate. I mean, give me the sheep gate, right? That's noble. Sacrifices come in there. That's sacred. I'll build that. Give me the fish gate. Let me help rebuild the section where commerce will flourish. I'll build the fish gate. Give me the water gate. Everybody needs water. They'll love you for that. That's a noble task too. But the dung gate? But here's the thing, church. Somebody had to do it. And I don't want you to miss this. Because even though it wasn't the most glamorous job, like when you're walking around the city showing your relatives when they come late and they're like, what did you do? You're like, man, I got the poop gate over there. You want to go see it? Nah, I'm good. Like it's not majestic. But there's a beauty in this. Because for Hanan, for Malkijah and the people of Zenoah, the city needed a dung gate. And someone had to do it for the glory of God. It was messy. It wasn't prestigious by earthly standards. But it brought glory to God. And I want to remind you this morning that our faith is sometimes messy. And what God calls us to in some seasons is messy work. But there is faithfulness to be found even in the mess. There is blessing and reward that comes out of that mess. Bringing glory to God isn't going to always get you the earthly accolades. It might not give you status and recognition by people in this world. It might not even give you, get you recognition by people in your own church. But what it will get you is well done, good and faithful servant. I remember a conversation I had with a young man a few years back. He's not at Newbreed. Y'all don't know him, so I could tell a story anyway. He ain't listening to me anyway. But he was a gifted individual. He was a gifted individual. He was a gifted communicator, one of the best I'd ever seen. Younger guy. He was telling me about how he believed that he was called to ministry. And and I got excited because I could see it. Like when you see a gifting in someone and they tell you they want to use that gifting for ministry, like that's exciting. So I thought that was great. And so I said to him, what kind of ministry do you feel called to? Now thinking that he was going to say something along the lines of pastor, teacher, missionary, he said, true story, I'm not, being, I'm not trying to be silly. He said, I feel like I'm called to be an influencer. I wasn't really expecting that. Uh, I missed that one in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to be honest. So I said to him, trying to be gracious, all right, man, like what? what do you mean when you say that you want to be an influencer? And he said to me, I'm going to grow my social media platform so that I can communicate to as many people as possible about God. I want people to know about God. That's great. He said, I just feel like God has gifted me to communicate to people, and that's how I'm going to do it. And I'll say, at this point, I didn't fully disagree. And I was like, all right, maybe God has called you. Maybe that is something that he can use, that God will. I mean, God will use anything for his glory. And I was like, maybe he, he called you to that. So I asked him this. I said, well, what if God wants you to use that gifting, that ability to communicate? What if it isn't on social media? And what if God calls you, say, to pastor a church of 40 people for 30 years? And I'll never forget his response, because at least he was honest and he said it. He said, oh, I don't ever want to do that because people are just too messy. 
Here's the thing. I can't disagree with him. People are messy. Ministry is messy. But it got me thinking, just being honest, I'm not trying to tout myself, but it got me thinking, why is it that I do what I do as a pastor? Why do I do what I do? And here's what I got for you. I'm not your pastor because this is easy. It's not. I'm not your pastor because I get all the world's accolades. Nobody knows who I am. I'm good with that. I'm not here because this somehow isn't messy. It is. You know it's true. Y'all messy people. I'm messy too. But here's what I believe. That there's glory in that mess. And I know it's true. Do you want to know how I know it's true? I have to believe that for Hanan and Malkija and the people of Zenoa, the ones who were tasked with the dung gate, I got to believe their favorite Bible verse in all of Scripture is Hebrews 11, 11 through 13. You want to know why? Because it says, For the body of the animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside that gate. So that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the gate bearing his disgrace. You want to know how I know there's glory in the mess? Because Jesus will meet us in the mess. The gate that they built is the place where Jesus was. The world didn't see the value of it. They just thought it was a waste gate. And Jesus says, I'll be there. You want to know how I know there's glory in the mess? Because Jesus is in the mess. And listen to me, saint, please. Bringing God glory does not require that you have everything figured out in your life. Bringing God glory doesn't mean that you got all your mess cleaned up. Bringing God glory doesn't mean everything is going well in your life. In fact, sometimes it's when you are in the midst of a messy season, a messy job, a messy family, and you still can proclaim the glory of God. It's sometimes in those moments that God looks the most glorious. Because you are declaring that God is good even when the assignment he has given you is not. God is worthy even when the world sees your position as worthless. God is worthy because you know he can take your mess and make it majestic. But know this, it's also in those moments where we can experience the blessing of God in some of its most profound ways, even in our own lives. There's a proverb I love. I love this proverb. It's uh, Proverbs 14, 4, and this is what it says. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crop comes by the strength of the ox. Let me give you Michael's paraphrase of that. That's me. I'm Michael. If you want the blessing of abundance, you got to be willing to shovel some stank. That's the Baptist version. But what that Proverbs is telling you is that the abundance comes through the work of the ox. But if you don't have an ox, yeah, the manger's clean, the pen's clean, but there's no abundance there. And sometimes if you want the abundance of God's work, you've got to be willing to wade through some mess along the way. Come on. But out of that mess, God can produce a harvest. Do you want to know how I know that's true? Because for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we met him outside the dung gate. And there is a harvest. Here's the final truth that I want you to see. Not only is our purpose spiritual, not only is our purpose countercultural, not only is our purpose messy, but our purpose is communal. It's communal. You see this throughout the entire chapter, but let me just read you one verse in particular, and it's verse 12. 
says, Beside him, Shalom, son of Halahesh, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. It's significant that that's in there because daughters typically wouldn't do this kind of work. The women wouldn't do this work in ancient Israel. This was the jobs, these were jobs that were reserved for the men. But Nehemiah makes it a point to say that there were rulers and they even brought their daughters to be a part of the work. One of the beautiful things about the work of the rebuilding of the wall that we see in Nehemiah 3 is the diverse group of people that participated in the work. You have men and women. You have sons and daughters. You have priests and merchants. You have goldsmiths and servants. You have nobles and you have the everyday people. You have people from different regions and people groups all working together for the glory of God. And so there are two things that I want you to see from this. First, glorifying God was never meant to be done in isolation. Glorifying God was never meant to be done in isolation. Rebuilding the wall was too big a task for Nehemiah alone. The task for Israel of glorifying God was too big a task for one individual alone to accomplish. And the only way that the nation of Israel could be faithful to their call of being a light to the nations was if the nation as a whole understood their purpose. And the same thing is true for us as a church. God has not given each and every one of us a different purpose that we work out on our own. God has given us the same purpose of glorifying him that is supposed to be done in community. That's the nature of the church. We are the covenant community of God gathered together to glorify God together by representing his kingdom here on earth together. I like the way that Christopher Wright says it when he says this. He says, it's not not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as much as God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for the mission, God's mission. We have one mission, and it's not ours. It's God's. It's to bring him the glory that he is rightly due. God's mission is that the world would see his glory. And our part as the collective people of God is to make that glory known. And one of the ways we do that is by doing it together. But second, not only was it not meant to be done in isolation, The communal aspect, it was meant to be done with a community of diverse people. In fact, one of the ways that God is most glorified is when diverse people gather together united under the purpose of glorifying God when they have nothing else that would unite them. And in a very real sense, it is our diversity that glorifies God. Listen, I'm going to shoot you straight. This isn't going to be a shock to some of you. Some of you are visiting newer to to us, so I'm just going to say it. Do with it what you want. We value diversity at this church, and we're not ashamed of that. I call it what you want, man. Call it CRT, call it Marxism, call it wokeness. I don't know. What else, what else are we supposed to call it these days? We value diversity. We do. Because the Bible values diversity. And, and, and it's not. I want to be clear. It is not because it's the hip thing to do. I praise God that we are not one of those churches that pursued a diverse church because, because it was the popular thing to do in culture. Because if you're unaware of this, it is becoming less and less popular to be a diverse church because people are saying it's too hard, it's too tough, it requires too much sacrifice, and we don't want to do it. But I praise God that New Breed never built our value of diversity on the cultural's whims. What well, we see it and we believe it because the Bible testifies to it. Here in Nehemiah 3, it is a testimony of the fact that a diverse people of God gathered together under the purpose of glorifying God brings God glory by the sheer fact that they're diverse people working together. It's a powerful testimony of the reconciling power of the gospel that we believe. 
I believe the gospel demands that we be reconciled with one another. This isn't going to be new to some of you, but I'll show it to you before. I'll show it to you again. In, in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, right? We know that. Y'all know my position. I think Genesis 3 and 4 is the fall of man. And in Genesis chapter 3, something very interesting happens, right? Adam and Eve sin. That's not interesting. That's the sad part, right? They, they sin. They, they do what God told them not to do, and then they hide themselves from God. You remember that? And in Genesis 3 verse 9, God asked this question of Adam, where are you? Do you think God did not know where Adam was? He knew exactly where Adam was. He asked that question to show that there is now a separation between you and me. But then you jump to Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain kills his brother Abel. Kills him. Gets rid of the body. And in Genesis 4, 9, God asks another question. Where is your brother? Did God not know where his brother was? He knew exactly where his brother was because he is highlighting the fact that sin has not only broken the relationship between us and God, it has now broken the relationship between us and one another. But then fast forward to Ephesians chapter 2. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul deals with Genesis 3. And in 11 through the rest of the chapter, he deals with Genesis 4. Because in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we learn that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Yeah, there's separation. Got it. Dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at, within us, the sons of disobedience, right? We are by nature children of wrath. And then it says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And it highlights the fact that we can be made right with God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. He was buried He raised from the dead three days later. And now we can be made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus and holding fast to him. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because then in Ephesians 2, 11 through the end of the chapter, he says, and he is our peace who has made both groups one. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. And he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. So not only is Jesus sufficient to to deal with the separation that's highlighted in Genesis 3, he is sufficient to deal with the separation that's highlighted in Genesis 4. What I'm telling you is that the gospel not only reconciles you to God, the gospel is meant to reconcile you to one another. And if you cannot be reconciled to people that are different from you, your gospel is weak. But I want to be clear, Jesus is not. And he reconciles people. Oh, even as Pastor Lance said earlier, he is bringing together a a diverse group of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation that are declaring worthy is the Lamb. And I don't know about you, but I just want Newbreed to be a little taste of heaven here on earth. Because if that's the kingdom we represent, let's look like the kingdom. Let me tell you, it will be hard. We'll say dumb stuff. We'll hurt each other's feelings. Anybody who's been around for a minute can say, yep, we've, we've hurt each other's feelings. But we believe the reconciling power of Jesus is so strong that we will wade through the mess of hurt feelings, of misunderstandings, of stereotypes and stupid comments because we believe that God is worthy. So let me end with that. Kind of answered the question already. Why bother with all of this? Like, why set our lives to the task of making much of the glory of God? 
Why would we want to engage in a spiritual work? Why would we want to be countercultural? Why would we want to, to step into the mess? Why would we want to live our lives in community that opens us up and makes us vulnerable and means that we got to deal with other people and they got to deal with us? Why would we do all of that? Here's the single simple answer. Because Jesus is worthy. Because if Jesus has indeed made a way for you and I to be made right with God, something that we could not, cannot, will never be able to do on our own. If he has made a way for us to be reconciled to one another, even that person you think you could never be around. If God can reconcile us to himself and to one another, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy. And it is a, because he's worthy that we believe his kingdom is better. And so here's my prayer for us. My prayer is that we would day in and day out cultivate a faith that has a purpose. A purpose of glorifying God in all that we say and all that we do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we thank you for the task that you have allowed us to partake in of making much of your great name. And I pray that we would never be a people that enter into that task begrudgingly because we believe that you are worthy, God. We believe that living our life for your glory is better than living our life for our own glory because we believe that you know what human flourishing is and that you are the expert on goodness and we'd rather have your flourishing and your goodness than anything else that this world can offer. God, I plead with you to give us grace by the power of your spirit to be a people committed to making much of your great name in all that we say and all that we do so that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do everything for your great glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.